Hello and welcome to this episode of Physical Attraction, where we will be continuing our series on the SoftBank Vision Fund, SoftBank's Blurry Vision, Part 2. So last episode we talked about the SoftBank Vision Fund and the founder Masayoshi Son, serial tech entrepreneur, gambler, visionary, luminary, possibly somewhat delusional, who has a penchant for ploughing billions of dollars into various ventures in futuristic technologies, not all of which ultimately succeed. The Vision Fund was established in 2017, and as we described in the last episode, consisted of $100 billion that they intended to invest over the next five years, before raising another round of $100 billion that was due to start later in 2020-21. It is, to put it mildly, a mind-bogglingly large venture capital fund trying to bet on the future. So what has SoftBank put its money into? There are a few big bets that get a lot of attention, and some others that are perhaps even more interesting, so let's deal with them in order. One of the first and most notable bets was into Uber, the ride-sharing company that you're probably already aware of, where gig economy taxi drivers take you from place to place. When SoftBank invested in Uber in 2017, Uber was already a huge company. In fact, at that stage, there were already more Uber journeys happening than taxi journeys in New York. I remember reading about this investment and being a little disappointed that the Vision Fund didn't seem to have a great deal of vision to it. You might expect an early-stage VC, particularly one with the marketing material surrounding SoftBank, to fund hundreds of smaller companies with new ideas or provisional technologies, perhaps spun out of universities, that might take five to ten years to come to fruition. These would be small companies with a novel idea which may or may not ultimately be a success, and the VC might spend a few million dollars on each of these companies to allow them to progress their technology and develop it further. SoftBank weren't doing that, though. Instead, they ploughed at first $7.7 billion in December 2017 into Uber, which was already a huge startup, and they've since put another $2.3 billion into Uber and its advanced technologies group, meaning that $10 billion, or around 10% of the whole vision fund, has gone into Uber alone. So in light of this, it's worth looking at Uber in a little more detail. Despite being so ubiquitous amongst many major cities across the world, except perhaps in China, where Didi Xuking, a competing service, is closer to establishing the monopoly, By the way, SoftBank has also invested in Didi to the tune of $500 million. Despite being so ubiquitous, though, Uber has never actually made any money. There's a reason that the company needs these constant injections of venture capital, amounting to tens of billions of dollars over the last few years. It's it's not profitable, and it never has been. In fact, Uber is probably one of the least profitable companies of all time. In the first quarter of 2019, before anyone had heard of COVID, I might add, the company lost $5 billion. At the rate they've been going lately, Uber would burn through SoftBank's entire capital investment in six months of losses. How on earth do you lose $5 billion in three months, you might ask? Well, a lot of the specific headline figure was down to Uber giving away stocks as compensation to its employees after they went public and floated the company on the stock market. But even when you take that into account, they're still losing billions a year and lost around $8.5 billion last year in total. How can this be? Well, the answer very much appears to be Uber's business model. They have this Silicon Valley attitude of expand first and achieve profitability later. In other words, their first aim is to corner the market for ride-sharing and private vehicle hire around the world. To do that, they have to be able to expand their operations to virtually every major city and town in the places that they want to cover, regardless of whether or not their operations in any particular place are making money. And then, in order to take over from the established taxi companies there, they need to undercut everyone who is already operating in that particular place, to get people to switch to Uber. They can do this through ride subsidies, making rides cheaper than they otherwise would be, 
special offers to get people to start using the app and so on, and spending billions of dollars on marketing, of course, to attract drivers and customers. In fact, if you look at the second quarter of 2018, Uber spent almost half the money that it made after paying drivers, taxes, refunds and expenses on marketing alone, which helped it to lose nearly a billion dollars in that quarter. If you take a city like New York, the taxicab industry has only really managed to be profitable there with some quite strict regulations on how it can operate, to the extent that once upon a time, the special taxicab medallions that would allow you to operate as a proper licensed taxi driver there would change hands for millions of dollars. The innovation of Uber isn't necessarily the app, which is nice software that connects riders to drivers, sure, but it's actually the circumvention of these regulations on the kind of hours that cab drivers can work, the way you have to treat your employees, the vetting and training that they need to go through, and the prices that you can charge for their service. This is what Uber's innovation is, as the Trash Future podcast so ably pointed out. Lots of the companies that poise and pose as tech companies are really just companies that circumvent regulations that have been built up over the last few years. For example, Uber were hit in November 2019 with a $650 million penalty by the state of New Jersey in the US. And this is because Uber classes its drivers as independent contractors rather than employees. That allows it to basically avoid paying any manner of taxes on the employment of these people, and also to avoid lots of the responsibility that they would have to take care of their employees, because they're all independent contractors, after all. The state of New Jersey argues that they actually clearly are employees of Uber, and therefore unemployment insurance and disability insurance taxes are due to the state. By posing as a tech company with a new business model, Uber may have avoided billions in taxes and benefits like this that ordinary companies would have had to pay to their employees in the past in order to operate in the same way and at the same scale. But even to survive, Uber and similar companies find ways to undercut existing markets, quite often in this loss-leader way, which requires a constant injection of billions of dollars of venture capital to be sustainable. But even to survive, Uber and similar companies find ways to undercut existing markets, quite often in this loss-leader way, which requires a constant injection of billions of dollars of venture capital to be sustainable. So people have criticised Uber and SoftBank for investing in it, because the plan, if there is a plan, seems simply to be to pump so much money into these companies that disrupt existing industries, until they can recreate the monopolies that previously existed for these services. Once Uber has the monopoly on transportation, then they can start to charge enough that they'll actually make some kind of money doing so. Part of the issue is that while there isn't a monopoly, they can't charge whatever they want, and other companies that are willing to operate in fewer markets or burn money even faster can compete with them. And the issue that Uber has found is that the cost for a consumer to switch from driving with one ride-sharing company to another is as small as downloading an app, and it's not too hard for drivers to switch from one company to another that might offer some advantages in compensation or rides that might treat its workers slightly better or paying more. The competition with other services like Lyft and Captain, which also burn through huge amounts of venture capital money to keep going and aren't profitable in their own right, is causing Uber to have to burn even more money just to keep up its own market share. You end up in this race to the bottom where they're all offering cheaper and cheaper rides and more and more bonuses to entice customers and drivers to the platform temporarily in the hope that they will capture a big enough market share that they can eventually jack up the prices and make profit. So looked at in isolation, Uber is a pretty amazing company. Its drivers often do earn less than the minimum wage in the US, an average of just $9 an hour in the US. On top of that, because the drivers provide the gasoline and the car and the servicing and the MOT and all that kind of thing, 
and they bear the brunt of the car's cost depreciating over time as long as the maintenance, many of the operating costs of running a taxi firm are here being shifted onto the drivers, a lot of whom are even worse off financially from the deal than they would be if they'd taken on a different minimum wage job. Many drivers enter into uh, long-term contracts to buy the car where they're locked into a sequence of payments, which means they have to keep driving and maintaining the Uber, even though the deal is a lot worse than the one that they thought they were getting into at the start of it. And ultimately, by the way, if Uber had established the transportation monopoly they dreamt of, you can bet that its workers would be paid even less, as the company wants them to have no competing alternatives to go to. In addition to these practices to uh, spin off all of these different expenses by pushing them onto the drivers, Uber has made many attempts to avoid taxes and regulations in order to save money, and has often succeeded in paying very small amounts of tax in various different jurisdictions compared to a traditional taxi company. And yet it is spending so much on expanding its operations and marketing them that despite all of this, it still manages to burn through billions of dollars worth of venture capital money every year. You could argue that the whole thing is just an elaborate mechanism to funnel this venture capital money towards giving people slightly subsidised taxi rides while exploiting drivers and circumventing the law. All the while, the only way it really gestures to being profitable at some point is arguing that transportation is a $12 trillion industry and one day Uber will account for a big fraction of that. Which doesn't really seem that realistic. The ultimate idea behind that is that someday Uber and similar services will replace people ever owning their own vehicles, and all transportation will become mobility as a service. That may well be how things go in the future. We might move to a model where people own fewer cars. But how much money and how long are you going to have to burn it to bridge the gap between where the company is now and that envisioned future? Of course, to do this, you have to compete with public transport, which for most journeys is intrinsically going to be cheaper to run at a profit than ride-sharing because you have more people. And it's also capable of providing the capacity in a way that having a city clogged with cars is simply not going to do, to say nothing of the environmental cost. It's not impossible that there is a version of doing what Uber does that can make money, particularly if it's restricted to markets with quite high demand that are suitable for this large-scale car transportation network. But the reality is that a lot of the foundational assumptions of the business, for example, that it could achieve a monopoly and then set prices, that it would save a lot on overheads by not owning any vehicles and shifting the cost onto the drivers, that it would someday achieve such a size and scale that it would save money due to economies of scale, that regulators wouldn't be able to touch it and it could earn money that way, and that competitors could be driven out by establishing a monopoly and with this initial lost leading. Well, the company has been going for a long time now, and all of these core assumptions look increasingly wrong or misguided. And in light of that, the business looks like quite a bad bet. And this was before COVID-19 and the coming depression. COVID-19 has obviously massively reduced people's willingness to take trips and use apps like Uber, and will likely continue to do so in the future. How long are these massive VC firms going to be willing to pump billions into this strategy when it has no clear route to even turning a profit now? And of course, how bad will Uber's attempts to exploit and uh, diminish the pay that goes to its drivers and exploit its drivers get when you have a large pool of unemployed people who are looking to make enough money to survive? As more and more stable work gets converted into the gig economy, and these companies that have been backed by venture capital look to try and become profitable, you can't really see how they can slash too much of their budget on anything aside from paying the drivers. And that's a real issue. 
One of the ways in which Uber does attract a lot of venture capital investment is by focusing on its research and development arms. Indeed, a billion of SoftBank's investment went straight into the arm of Uber that is aiming to develop autonomous vehicles. Now, the allure of autonomous vehicles as an ultimate model for Uber to switch to is pretty obvious. Once you have those, you could cut out having to pay the pesky drivers altogether, and thus you could further undercut existing services, even though you now have to presumably transition to owning, maintaining, and operating a fleet of cars yourself. But it seems unlikely at this stage that autonomous vehicles are really going to be on the roads in force in any time in the next 10 years or so. There are an awful lot of problems with them that have not yet been addressed. For example, Uber itself had a famous fatal crash with one of its self-driving cars in Arizona in 2018. The incident report said, astonishingly, that, quote, the system design did not include a consideration for jaywalking pedestrians, and Uber's self-driving cars have been involved in 37 crashes and other incidents in the last few years. Looking at the signs, you can see that internally, privately, while a lot of self-driving car companies are still happy to sell you the hype that in the next few years we'll all be driving around in autonomous taxis, many of them have started to pivot quite substantially to smaller gains and smaller goals that might be realisable in the next few years. Quoting from Wired in the last year, they said, quote, If you're expecting self-driving cars to arrive soon, prepare for disappointment. A decade of massive investment in robocar tech has spawned impressive progress, but the arrival of a truly driverless car, the car that can go anywhere, anytime, without human help, remains delayed indefinitely. Despite Elon Musk's self-assured claim that Teslas will have full self-driving capability by the end of 2020, the world is too diverse and unpredictable, the robots too expensive and temperamental, for cars to navigate all of the things that human drivers can navigate now. Even John Krafkick, CEO of Waymo, the grown-up company that was once Google's self-driving car project, agrees, saying last year, quote, autonomy will always have some constraints. That reality has pushed autonomous vehicle outlets to embrace operational design domains, that is, engineer-speak for picking one's battles. They'll aim their tech at specific tasks that it can handle, now or soon. The best way to understand the self-driving world is not to ask when it will arrive, but where, and how, and for whom. End quote. So you can see that the self-driving car industry is kind of moving into these niches, and this is a particularly familiar realisation. I mean, last episode I talked a little bit about how I was tasked with coming up with this business plan for a humanoid robot company. When it became clear to me how unlikely these robots were to be useful in the near term, the best that I could do to try and salvage the business plan was to point out a whole bunch of stepping stone industries, niches essentially, that it might be profitable to invest in, or where the robotic and automated technologies that exist today could actually add value. And then if you're trying to pitch a humanoid robot company, then you eventually have to say, okay, we have these different arms of this company, which could eventually lead to businesses that could develop the technologies that would need to be incorporated into a more futuristic humanoid robot. An example might be trying to repurpose a robotic hand to act as a pick-and-place robot in the Amazon warehouse. By focusing on this near-term and hopefully profitable application, you can actually work out some of the kinks of the technology in practical use cases, and hopefully you do have some kind of viable business there for selling your technology to these niche applications that doesn't rely on you going from zero to self-driving car or from zero to humanoid robot straight away. A classic example of this model for technology development would be some of the incubation that solar panels got from their use on satellites. Solar panels were initially extremely expensive, but there were these niche applications on satellites where you needed a remote way of generating power, or, for example, 
in remote locations where they were the best option to generate power, and in space where you needed these things because they could generate power regardless of where you were in space. Clearly, these were the kind of niche applications where solar power would have the edge over more traditional thermal power plants. And this allowed a market for solar panels that was just large enough for some serious research and development to occur that helped make them cheaper and more efficient in the long run. Having realised that the dream of going from zero to a full-on robot butler was never going to happen with the tech as it is today, I tried my hardest to come up with stepping stone applications for each of the components of the robot, which would later lead to the hull. Incidentally, as an aside, this is why I think if any company will make serious advances in robotics, it's going to be Amazon and not SoftBank. Because Amazon have a whole supply chain, potentially, where they can find those niche applications, trial them, and potentially perfect them fairly soon. And we know, for example, that Amazon has got a robotics division. It has a robotics competition where they're looking for arms that can pick and package things in the warehouse. It's got uh, automated robots that drive around on the warehouse floors already. And it has, potentially, it will start looking into things like last mile delivery, where you might have to have, say, uh, robotic legs that would take, uh, that would walk around in the built environment and take packages to people's doors and so on. But I mean, this is all a little bit speculative, but at least you can see how they would have the opportunity to roll out some kind of robots over the whole course of their business and maybe save some money that way, in certain applications anyway. But that's probably another episode. So having seen this happen in robotics, we now see that self-driving car companies are going down the same road. You might have a self-driving shuttle that would be restricted to a particular route, say train station to airport or something, maybe with a driver on hand in case anything goes wrong. Small spaces like university campuses, residential facilities and so on, they can be a good testing ground for autonomous vehicles. They're easy to map out, they have predictable flows of traffic, and the speeds are generally slower. There are already long-haul trucking routes that are boring and predictable enough that they can be at least partially automated with cruise control and things like that. So it's going to be a sort of gradual move into these niche applications before we have instantly self-driving cars that can do things like Uber cars would need to do. And ditto, you know, there's going to be some automated farming and mining machines where there's no traffic to worry about, and you can essentially map out the entire route in advance if necessary. I mean, in many instances, these applications have already been working for the last few years. I never want to deny technological progress or take away from the remarkable achievements that people have made in all branches of tech. I just think it's far easier to conceive of a lot of technologies working than it actually is to achieve what you can conceive of. People get seduced by the notion that you can do a lot of things more easily and that things are a lot closer to fruition than they actually are. There are enough niche applications that self-driving tech is only going to continue to improve. But if it's a decade or 20 or 30 years away or even further away from being able to replace an Uber driver in all but the most limited of circumstances, then the R&D is not really an argument for Uber's business model. Because I doubt they can continue to keep burning cash at this rate for another 10 or 20 years before self-driving cars come to their rescue and allow them to totally eliminate drivers from their business model and become more profitable that way. And even if self-driving car technology does become mainstream, Uber would then have to spend a huge amount of money to purchase a fleet of self-driving cars. Car manufacturers that are developing self-driving technology, who can manufacture the cars in-house, would seemingly have a much less costly route to replicate what Uber does with self-driving vehicles than Uber itself would. And Uber's assets, the drivers, the passenger loyalty, these have been demonstrated to shift pretty easily to competitors who can offer cheaper or more efficient services in local marketplaces. So it's not clear what stops them from coming in and taking any profitability away from Uber. 
unless you have reason to believe Uber will be the only ones to get the technology working, and it will be totally proprietary and impossible for anyone to copy it. And I think given how close the various competitors in the race seem to be at the moment, I don't really see why you would think that's the case. And I certainly think that in Uber's case, one of the main reasons for researching self-driving cars and making such a big deal about it is so they can position themselves as a tech company and continue to attract a lot of venture capital funding. That is going to be discussing disrupting or taking over whole industries when their actual core business model is to use that funding to undercut competitors. That tech company branding is there to circumvent laws and tax requirements and eventually establish a monopoly where they can set prices. By calling themselves a tech company and focusing on the digital side of the business, the hope is that they can persuade investors that they will genuinely be the next Amazon. Because there have been these tech companies that have initially made quite heavy losses before eventually turning massive profits and growing explosively within a few years due to the economies of scale. But the economies of scale that something like Amazon can leverage are a lot more realistic than with a company like Uber. So in a sense, you have to look at this as quite a predatory idea. The only route it has to become profitable is to undercut and eliminate the competition, establish a monopoly, and then jack up its prices and reduce its pay to its drivers. Drivers have already seen their compensation and initial bonus schemes slashed in 2015-16. They've already been misled by marketing material which claims they'll earn much more from driving Uber than they actually will when the costs of owning the vehicle are taken into account. If this was presented as the naked business model, a huge loss leader attempt to dominate transportation, then maybe fewer venture capitalists would invest. But instead, companies like Uber exploit the hype around technology, the belief that their app or access to big data or a proprietary algorithm will make money. Of course, if their proprietary algorithm was really so revolutionary, it's not clear how so many other companies have come in as direct competitors by doing the same thing. The belief that all it takes is for an old industry to be disrupted by a Silicon Valley type tech company and endless profits will necessarily ensue. That's what they're exploiting here. And the belief, perhaps most naively of all, that they can disrupt this industry with automated vehicles. It's this techno-futurist optimistic gloss on the business model that likely allowed them to sell themselves to a company like SoftBank. And it seems to have worked, because after all, one wonders how much SoftBank would have invested in them if they couldn't have made this sort of pitch. But put simply, the, the tech innovations at the heart of Uber, the app that might reduce wait times compared to cab firms, simply isn't worth enough to justify the valuation of the company, nor the heavy subsidy on driving prices that it's used to get market dominance. You need to understand that it can't scale in the same way as previous tech companies. Running Facebook does get cheaper per user as the company scales to have more and more users, but the same is not true of Uber. 85% of Uber's costs are for the drivers, the fuel, and the insurance. And these costs don't get cheaper when you scale to more users or move to different locations. And Uber's attempts to expand and corner into many markets actually make their operating costs more expensive per mile than the traditional cab firms that operated in individual cities and basically had uh, large market shares in those individual cities. And that leaves SoftBank's bet on Uber in a rather sticky position, as demonstrated by the fact that the Vision Fund has lost $5 billion from its investment in Uber as of May 2020, according to a Bloomberg report. So Uber alone accounts for about $10 billion of the Vision Fund. But when you add in Uber's competitors, Grab in Singapore, who got $3.5 billion from the Vision Fund, Cruise, the self-driving car company, who got $4.6 billion from the Vision Fund across two rounds of funding, Manbang Group, who do the same thing but for trucks, who got nearly $2 billion. Didi, the Chinese competitor to Uber, that got $500 million. 
You see that in total, bets on companies that are Uber-like or rely on the success of self-driving cars coming to fruition fairly soon amount to around $21 billion, which is a substantial fraction of the Vision Fund. By the way, I should point out that none of these arguments about Uber or ride-sharing in general are new at all. This is exactly the kind of thing that people like Cory Doctorow and Hubert Horan have been saying for years, since way back in 2016-17, before SoftBank even made their multi-billion dollar bet on Uber. In other words, it's not like there was no warning for the Vision Fund in advance that this might not work out. For example, this was Hubert Horan in May 2019. He said, quote, Few if any of Uber's narrative claims were objectively true. Hype about powerful, cutting-edge technological innovations that could overwhelm incumbents in any market worldwide helped hide the fact that Uber was actually higher cost and less efficient than the operators it had driven out of business. Stories about customers freely choosing its superior products in competitive markets helped hide Uber's use of massive subsidies to subvert market price signals and mislead investors about its growth. Misleading accounts about driver pay and working conditions helped hide the fact that most margin improvement was down to driving driver take-home pay down to minimum wage levels. Uber was never going to dominate driverless cars and displace private car ownership, but these tales created false impressions about robust long-term growth. But all of these claims were uncritically repeated in the mainstream media, and over time they helped shape the powerful general perception that Uber was successful, efficient and very valuable. The formula Uber used to build powerful, effective narratives was copied directly from what is widely used in partisan political battles. It combines significant resources, money, and channels of communication, the emotive us-versus-them propaganda-style techniques demonstrated to be effective, and, of course, Travis Kalanick, the CEO's contribution, the willingness to deploy these techniques in a ruthless and monomaniacal manner. The formula is especially effective when the interests that might disagree or challenge those claims were significantly less organised or funded. Horan's original series, Trashing Uber's Economics, came out in October 2016, and I urge you to give that 20-part essay a read if you need any more persuading that Uber was a bad bet. So again, this has been a long time coming, and I just want to quote part of that essay where he explains why the Amazon comparisons are misleading. He says, quote, It is useful to compare the public claims and perceptions about Uber's growth with the case of Amazon, which, like Uber, was seeking to drive a massive set of incumbent competitors out of business to achieve long-term industry dominance. Amazon's business model was focused on disrupting a book retailing industry that had high prices, high margins, and high costs. By contrast, Uber cannot explain how it will realise billions in profit from an industry selling a commodity product with razor-thin margins that had already cut costs to the bone. Unlike Uber, Amazon proactively provided outsiders with compelling, verifiable evidence of the sources of its efficiency and scale advantages. These included the huge savings from eliminating brick-and-mortar retail locations, enormous scale economies in warehousing and distribution, sophisticated software that not only processed customer orders, but dramatically simplified product search and identified customer-tailored buying suggestions, which increased leverage with publishers and other suppliers, and huge scale economies that allowed it to expand geographically and into new markets at a very small marginal cost once its basic selling and warehousing slash distribution infrastructure was in place. These huge scale economies meant that it could drive down the costs of a unit as it grew, building strong loyalty through rock-bottom prices, and making it virtually impossible for existing or new entrants to ever match its levels of efficiency. Amazon's efficiency claims could be readily verified by objective outsiders who were experts in the relative retailing, warehousing and e-commerce fields. 
Amazon's digital platform meant that it could expand into other, lower-margin businesses, but it did not invest heavily in these new businesses until it had secured a sustainable position in its core business. Unlike Uber, Amazon encouraged an active public discussion of its business model in order to build credibility and support in the financial community. While many observers were uncertain about Amazon's long-term profit potential and questioned specific practices, there was universal agreement that its ability to rapidly capture share from industry incumbents was based on legitimate competitive advantages, end quote. So the point here is that the economies of scale that apply to something like Amazon don't apply to Uber, where you don't actually benefit anything from having 100 cars versus 1,000 cars. There's, there's really no difference in what you're doing. You look at all of this, you look at the fact that Uber claimed it would be profitable in 2020 despite losing $9 billion last year, and you look at COVID-19, which has hit its business model that was already losing money. And it seems like the time is ripe that a lot of what these people have been predicting for a long time is going to happen. And I think the bubble of these pseudo-tech companies is set to burst. The final thing I want to mention in the tale of Uber as part of SoftBank is just a little bit about the founder, because Travis Kalanick, the founder, has been controversial for a long time. The sexual harassment allegations, the depictions of a toxic workplace culture, his decision to keep Uber as a private company for so long before it could go public so that people couldn't get a better look at its financials and business model, and then issue a verdict on its valuation. Despite all of the criticism that's levelled at Kalanick, he sold his shares in Uber in December 2019, prior to what might be its final collapse, and he netted himself $3.1 billion in the process for the invention of a company that has never turned investors a profit. So obviously, calling yourself a tech company can get you somewhere, and like any scheme, it tends to work pretty well for the founder, and indeed any other investors who can liquidate their stock options and sell them to some investor in time before leaving the company. Some people are doubtless going to make a lot of money from Uber's overinflated valuation. But it leaves an awful lot of other people holding the bag, and the SoftBank Vision Fund is going to be one of the big losers. I'm going to leave you with a quote from Byron Dieter, a partner in another VC firm, who is obviously revelling in the schadenfreude that comes with the floundering of the SoftBank Vision Fund. He says, quote, The flood of SoftBank dollars caused some companies to pursue bad business practices with marginal returns, and they incinerated a lot of dollars in the process. I'm sure there will be valuable businesses that will come out of the fund, but this is an experiment that has largely run its course and is not going to be repeated. End quote. Next episode, we're going to talk about another one of SoftBank's major investment bets, and another company that thought it could make a lot of money by posing as a tech company and disrupting an industry that didn't really need disrupting. And if you've heard of this company, you probably already know what happened to them. Next time, we're going to talk about WeWork. Thank you for listening to this episode of Physical Attraction. Remember, you can find us on the web at physicspodcast.com. There's the contact form, comments, questions, concerns, things that you'd like to know, things you'd like to hear about in the future, new ideas for new episodes and so on. I'm always grateful to receive your feedback. You can follow us on Twitter at PhysicsPod. There's a Facebook page, Physical Attraction, that you can go to. All of these things are ways to engage with the show. You can support us via the PayPal link that's on our website, physicspodcast.com, or by going to the Patreon and subscribing to get some of the bonus episodes that we've produced over the years. You only pay per new bonus episode that's released, so I think subscribing technically does give you access to free bonus episodes to begin with, so that should be an enticement for everyone to do that. Until next time, then, take care.